and it's not the first time I've said it, but I'll go ahead and say it on behalf of all of you. No one wants to hear me talk less than me after that music set. And I'm also just trying not to have my feelings hurt too bad that Graham is so much younger than me and already has a more masculine and cooler reading voice than I do. That hurts my feelings a little bit. Um, and I'm glad we're getting into this, uh, the second week of, uh, of Advent and the second week of Advent, when we head into the desert with John the Baptist, is always an interesting one to go through each, each uh, year. And as I was preparing for this week, I thought about a quote that we have all heard that is often misattributed to Albert Einstein. But from what I could figure out, he never actually said it. Not sure why it's gotten attributed to him. But in the age of the Internet, that happens a lot. And, uh, and the quote is this. The definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Right? The definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. I couldn't figure out exactly where this originated. It started showing up in books in the early 80s, and there's one female author who uh, is the first book you can find it in, but there's also talk of there being traces of this saying or some version of it in 12-step communities for a long time before that, which would make a lot of sense to me, right? Because it gets at that truth of humanity's natural disposition towards being very slow to learn from the past, from being slow to move away from the well-worn paths that we have, even if they lead to bad places, even if we should get rid of them, right? Uh, one of my favorite writers, Dallas Willard, phrased this basic idea in another way that is probably my favorite quote ever, and if you've been here long, you've heard me say it before, and I bring it up all the time, uh, in my own life, and it, and it just applies to so many things. And his way of saying it was this. He said, quote, The system is designed perfectly for the results you are getting. The system is designed perfectly for the results you are getting. You can go ahead and pull that out anytime you're struggling personally, things aren't going well at work, in your marriage, you name it. That quote uh, will help. In fact, one day I, I plan on charging people a lot of money to be a consultant for some you know, some area of expertise I don't have yet, and I'm just basically going to use that quote and then charge people a bunch of money for it. It's, it's going to be great. It's going to be murals all over the city based on that. It's going to be awesome. But it would be foolish, insane even, by the first quote, to expect a new or better result from the same thing, the same systems that we've always used that have never produced those good results that we want, Right? And this kind of quote-unquote insanity is hardwired into us. This is what people do. If you are a parent, you know this. Every day, my child forgets the same three things before school. Now, luckily, we live 150 yards from the front door of school. Uh, two days ago, she made it all the way to the school before I yelled across the street, did you brush your teeth? And she turned and looked exasperated at me, and I made her come all the way back into the house to do it. She was not happy about it. But every day she forgets the same three things and yet refuses to adjust her approach to get ready for school. She doesn't need to change anything to remember these three things. And yet, right? I mean, she's very protective of her super ineffective and unrelentingly predictable system that she has developed. And this brand of insanity is not just reserved for second graders that live in my house. This brand of insanity is the problem that we all suffer with and the problem that I think we attempt to address in the second week of Advent. This is the week each Advent when we head into the desert with John the Baptist, 
the firebrand prophet who wears camel hair and eats bugs and yells about repentance and dunks people in the river, right? John sticks out like a sore thumb. In fact, John is the stick in the spokes of the world system and in the power of the religious authorities of the day. He short circuits the systems. He is the wild-eyed prophet who is thought by everyone else to be crazy for telling us the most obvious, though uncomfortable, truths about our own worlds and our own lives. Why do we keep doing the same things that don't work? Why don't we move from one thing to something better? Right? John calls his hearers to stop their insanity. And yet the crowds, we stomp around the house angry that we're being told to brush our teeth once again before we head to school. Now we're going to spend two weeks with John, but this week is really more the setup for the message of John that we'll hear next week. But it starts in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, now verse, verse 1 I left out of the reading for Graham earlier, and I messed up the slides, and the Malachi verse showed up. But, um, and this is where Graham should thank me because of all the names that are going to get ready to come up that I'm going to butcher. Luke 3, verses 1 and 2 say this. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." I almost gave that to him to read, but that would have just been cruel, right? And now would be the appropriate time in tonight's scripture uh, reading and reflection uh, to ask ourselves, why the heck does Luke think we need to know or he would even care about all these names? And I'm convinced that this is here for a couple of reasons. The first one is, is the lesser one. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but it gives it historical concrete grounding, Right? We can find all of these names outside the Bible, historical accounts, all, all but one, maybe one. And we can get a relatively good idea of the years in which it all took place, what was happening in the world at those times. It's this kind of flag that is planted to, to ground it in actual history, right? And that's helpful. It communicates that we're not talking about a parable or a legend or some new mythology. No, these were actual people doing actual things in a specific time and place in our world's history. And that matters. That's good. But more importantly, I think this is being used to set something up. I think Luke is intending uh, to create a bit of a record scratch moment. And I'm looking around and seeing some of you. A record is a vinyl disc that has a needle, and as it dragged across the vinyl disc, it played music. But every once in a while, it would skip. Or in every movie in the 80s, when someone walked in the room that wasn't supposed to, it just automatically scraped all the way across the record and made that record scratch noise that you've probably heard and don't know where it comes from. I think he's trying to create that record scratch moment here, right? He names Caesar. He names the governors. All these various uh, rulers of Rome, the most important, significant, effective, unbelievable kingdom the world has ever created. It's a marvel of what man can do, right? These are the men who are making history, who command immense armies, who rule the world very literally, they're the most powerful and impressive people one can even imagine at this time. And then he goes on to name the two high priests, right? And the high priests, uh, there's some interesting things that go on with them. Annas was the father-in-law uh, of Caiaphas. And Annas was the high priest. 
And he didn't play well enough with the Romans, so the Romans removed him in around 6 or 7 AD. But he still remained very powerful and pulled a lot of strings behind uh, the scenes, including getting his own son-in-law appointed. But these are the most powerful men in this time uh, religiously. And they're a little too attached to Rome, right? But they represent Jewish religious history and practice. They are the pinnacle of this religious establishment. It is a complicated, some would say compromised relationship with Rome, but these are important religious people. You have the most powerful men of the most powerful kingdom the world has ever known, the most important religious figures of the time named. So here they are, the most important, the most powerful, the most religious and respected people in the known world. They represent the most successful and enviable products that the world system can produce, religious and secular. And yet, record scratch, the word of the God came where? Not to Caesar, not to the high priest, to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. This makes no sense. This is not how it's supposed to work. It doesn't, God's word doesn't show up in the world's superpower, not within the well-established and powerful religious structure of the day. The word arrives in the desert, outside of all the systems. And it arrives to a weirdo, bug-eater nobody. Because as it turns out, God is no respecter of our impressive work. God is not impressed with the things that we have built. And it makes a little bit sense to me. It makes all the sense in the world to not be impressed because all those systems have managed to do is to get us where we are, right? And where are they? They're in a place where people will flock out to the desert desperate to hear from a bug eater about a better way. The world is not working as it's built. But not everyone goes out there, right? Perhaps the greatest tragedy of those who were Jesus and John's contemporaries is how easily, it, how easily they missed it, right? Jesus, the church, and its stories for us, they're ubiquitous. We hear them all the time. They're just kind of built into things. Even people that may not attend church or call themselves Christians are at least aware of the symbols and somewhat of the stories, So we can't really think about, or we don't really consider how particular they were to that time. Those were just a few people in one part of the world, pre-internet, which there was a thing. There were people, and this, this always has bothered me, there are people who probably walked within feet of Jesus in the flesh and went right along with life as normal. That's always been a jarring thought to me. Because I can only assume that I'm capable of missing it just as easily. That the God of the universe in flesh was standing right there and someone just passed them by. Right? And it gets at that truth that we are so thoroughly restricted by our own expectations that it is easy to miss what is right in front of us. There are accepted and expected paths for everyone and everything, and we are easily blinded to anything that works outside those accepted paths. Even those who are closest to Jesus, who are trying to follow Jesus, have a hard time getting past their own expectations and seeing God for who God is. God is easy to miss in the systems that we're accustomed to operating in. We tend to stick to the well-worn paths, 
even if they've led us over a cliff or two. We prefer the systems and choices that we've always made, no matter the results they've produced. And right away in our text, it seems that Luke is trying to remind us not to do this, to stop that insanity. God's word is not found in those places. God's word is not found in the places we have deemed impressive and uh, and the biggest and best things that we have built. And so in this second week of Advent, we leave the city, we leave the temple, we leave the systems we're accustomed to, and we go to the desert. And we go to the desert because that is the place throughout the history of Scripture, that is the place where life as usual just can't take place. I don't know if you've ever been on like a real camping trip. Like the no cell phones, don't know where you are, kind of I mean, really get out there. But it is impossible to do life as normal. We did a youth trip uh, with kids when I was in college where the youth leader didn't tell us as youth leaders or the kids that when we got to this place that we were going in the Smoky Mountains, we were going to put some stuff in a backpack, no tents, and leave and then be in the woods for a week with no tents or anything. And uh, we didn't know that until it happened. And I had to pretend like I knew it was happening all the time because I was with a group of junior hires who were um, losing their minds. I've never seen children more bereft in my life than the first 24 hours of that trip. (laughs) And if you want to manipulate, it's great for spirituality because they all got real close to Jesus real quick, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I mean, most of them got saved every day we were there. I mean, it was great for our numbers. But when you can't do life as usual in that way, right? Everyone's, we don't even know who we are in that week we were out there in the woods. And Luke is trying to remind us we've got to step outside of these well-worn paths, right? We go to the desert, we go camping because it's really hard to see our lives for what they are until we step outside of them for a moment and look back at them from the outside. And we all know that an unconsidered life is a pretty tragic thing. And so he sends us to the desert. And this week of Advent, we go to the desert. And then Luke continues, verse 3 through 6, and he says this. He went into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Repentance just means to turn from one thing to another. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is outside the systems. He's outside the kingdoms that we have built. He's in the desert, and he has a bold proclamation for us. In order to see God at work, We have to shed this world as we know it and expect it to be. John wants us to stop the insanity of working these same systems over and over again and expecting something better to come from them. A different world is possible. We cannot keep going to the same wells and expect different results. We are prepared to see God when the world and all of its peers and systems are turned on their ear. 
The world must be turned upside down and backwards and altogether reimagined. That is why we go to the desert. We go there to take all the mountains we've created that are too high for some people to climb and knock them flat. We go to the desert so that every deep valley that we have dug that keeps many people mired and unable to join the rest of us, we make those places level. We take all the winding and rough paths that so many find impossible to walk and we make them straight and we make them smooth. We prepare the way of the Lord into this new kingdom by removing all the impediments, all the hurdles, all the roadblocks and challenges that we have created, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, which keep the God of love from others in this world. We lose them. We knock them down. We turn them on their head. And there are a lot of them. We say no to the kingdoms as they exist, and we imagine a world that is not yet. In the desert, we look back on what we have created for ourselves, and we see it for what it is, a mess. And with repentance, we claim that not only is another world, a better world possible, but it's required of us. It's all that's worth giving our lives to. And why do we do all this? And that last line in verse 6 is the, is the most poignant to me of all this. So that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that is a bold claim for John to make. Into a, uh, into a uh, kingdom of the world that was very high on itself and its own people. Into a religious community that was very high on itself and its own people. Being God's chosen to say that this is for all flesh to see the salvation of God. So we can live in a world where no one is prevented from experiencing God's love and grace and unconditional acceptance. So that those broken and run over and left behind by the world's secular and religious that we have created can finally see a different result. So we can stop that insanity. The insanity of building a world that always results in the exact same things no matter how many different colors we try and paint the same system. So that's where we are this second week of Advent. In, in this Advent, we are invited again into the desert to be formed as God's people, into the uncomfortable and beautiful place where God's people have always gone to be transformed from slaves to the world as it is and into the kinds of disciples and followers of God that are enlivened by a world that can be, to be remade into a new people building a new world. We take this time to say no to the same old personal and communal patterns and practices that we have used over and over again and have only served to get us where we are. We say no to the consumerism, or we say no to the politics, we say no to the same old family infighting we do each year. We say no to whatever those things might be in order to be the people untethered from the way things are done and instead give ourselves to the Christ who is in front of us and the world he is seeking to build. To live in love like the world that is coming instead of the mess of a world which currently exists. So may we listen to the call. May we locate ourselves and cry out with John from the wilderness as we seek to clear the path for all of flesh, including our own, to experience the miracle of God's love incarnate. All we have to lose, 
is that which we know doesn't work in the first place. And that's not much of a cost. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful uh, that you are a God of the desert. A God who is not dependent on the systems we have built, on the way we have organized ourselves, and the way we have tried to um, grow and accomplish in this world. We are grateful that you are a God who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the very nature of a servant. That you are a God who turns this world on its head because this world needs to be turned on its head. God, may we be a people of the desert. May we step outside of life as we have always done it. And look to you. May we repent. May we turn from the world as it is and turn towards the world as it can be. God, we do love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.